friend, I'm Kat, and welcome to the Crime Chat. I am your forensic femme fatale. Natalie is your true crime addict connoisseur. We're just two normal girls who obsess about dark crimes, evil minds, and occasionally the unknown. Yes, we do. Oh, no. (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) Here's your disclaimer, chatters. The following crime chat contains adult content and descriptions of very violent scenarios today. Just stick with us. Your listener discretion is advised. Yes, and before we get into today's crime chat, Kat, what have you done? I have been watching a lot of TV. So I did finish you. I finished uh-huh. the end of season four. Totally leads into another season. Really? Totally. Yes. So, okay. I think. They haven't announced it, but I think. And then I also finished The Last of Us. Uh-huh. And <laughs> remember before I was like, Paul, how can it end like that? Well, there was one more episode. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> that I caught up with. So thank God. But it does seem like there's going to be a season two. Mm-hmm. So and then Chris and I were watching because it's the 20th, no, 30th anniversary of Waco. I think oh. by the time this one comes out, April 15th. And yeah. the anniversary is April 19th. So they're releasing like Netflix did a three series like docuseries on Waco. And then Paramount Plus also did like a movie that has uh, Taylor Kitsch in it that plays David Koresh. But the story behind it is just like, ugh. oh, yeah. Michael Shannon is also in it. He plays the lead negotiator for the FBI. Who's Michael Shannon? I don't know. Oh, you you would know him if you saw him. He um he plays like a lot of odd characters, but but that's just because of that that's his look. Like that's his his face. I'm trying to think what else he was in. He most recently I haven't seen it because I think it's on Showtime. I don't have Showtime, but he played '80s country TV series George and Loretta, maybe something like that. So he plays the, like a lot of like creepy characters a lot okay. of times, and it's just kind of a his persona. Um, okay. But he he was very good in this movie. So, but also to take away from like all of the death and torment, I've been also rewatching The Big Bang Theory. I love that show. <gasps> Me too. Jim Parsons is so good, and I did not realize you know, the he plays Sheldon Cooper. I did not realize how like other many movies that he was in. Yeah. Did you hear the thunder? I heard something. Yeah, it's thunder. <laughs> So it's thunderstorming here. We're going to try and get through this without the power going out. <laughs> oh my! What God. about you? What you been up to? So on Netflix, I found a show that you're going to love. It's called Don't Hang Up the Phone. Okay. The first story. So it's a limited series and it's about this criminal, this sex offender that was calling fast food restaurants like McDonald's. <gasps> yes. And, I and remember he, that. Yeah. yeah. And he was like getting people to do... I mean, the first story, we were sitting there, and we were in such disbelief that we didn't know. We started to laugh because we're like, this can't be real. This this is not a real story. This is ridiculous. Nobody could be this stupid. and (laughs) Gullible. (laughs) Gullible, stupid. And Kat, it it is crazy, the first story. So the first story happened, I want to say it was Kentucky, Mm -hmm. and this guy called and I'm not going to give too much away but he called this McDonald's and got the manager to strip ch- strips search one of the employees. The employee was an 18-year-old girl, this was her first job, you know, really innocent. Yeah. And then like the guy on the phone was like, "Well, the manager's like, "Well, I have an, a restaurant to run. I can't be doing this because it was taking hours for the strip search to, you mm-hmm. know, cuz he was directing what article of clothing to take off, read the label, things like that." 
Was he, like, watching as the manager did it? Like, did he have, like, a... Okay. No, everything was through the phone. So, you know, he was trying to get details and stuff Mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. Then he asked her, this is the the part that I could not believe. He asked her, well, while you're, you know, manning that restaurant, don't you trust somebody, maybe another, uh, a male uh, employee or somebody that you know, a husband? She's like, well, I have a fiancé that can come and watch her while I'm doing that so she doesn't escape. Mm -hmm. What the hell? So this man comes in, he gets on the phone with the guy who's, you know, who's the criminal saying Mm -hmm. to do all this stuff. He says to him, she needs now to give you oral sex. And he demanded she give him oral sex. So, but him, him, the fiance or him, the manager, the fiance, fiance. Okay. So the crazy part is, is that That, it's crazy. The whole thing is crazy. (laughs) But how do you not know that's. Like, as a man, how do you know that's wrong? And so the guy that did this, so I started watching the next episode because I needed, like, because at that point they stopped speaking about this man. I'm like, this man just physically assaulted this girl. Yeah. You know, like, so he ended up doing time. He ended up going to jail. And Mm -hmm. thank God, because the stupidity that ran through these people, oh, my God. Wow. You have to watch it. And it didn't just happen once. It happened all over the country. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, re- I kind of remember that when it was happening, or like, you know, that it had actually happened, but not obviously seeing the details and stuff behind it. That is insane. And there's a twist. Ooh, I love yeah. twists. <laughs> so check it out. But my next my next big show to watch, I think I shared it with you, is House of Hammer. Yes. I don't know anything about it. I just know kind of lightly the story of, of what it's about, but I really want to like dive into that, which is on Paramount+. Plus. Yeah, it looks really interesting. Yeah. <laughs> so, Kat, before we get into your story, you didn't tell me what your story was about until just like a minute ago, and uh, this is going to be a dark one. So, but I know you said it was taking place in New Jersey. Yes, Joyzy. Joyzy. The incident happened in New Jersey, but there's other states involved, yes. Yes, but before we get into it, let's go visit the great state of Forget About It, <laughs> and I want to test your knowledge of some things that uh, Jersey created or Jersey mm. produced, or and it's going to be based Are we going to on... talk about Snooki again? No, 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 no. <laughs> this is going to be the greatness of Jersey, like really okay. great stuff that they did. And it's going to be based in movies, mm-hmm. music, mm-hmm. and TV. I will give it my best shot. I think you're going to do good. I'll be like, Pat Benatar, hit me with your best shot. And it's not going to be questions. I'm going to use uh, sound cuts. Okay. And you got to tell me what it is. <sighs> Forget about <laughs> it. <laughs> you ready? <laughs> okay. All right, let's do this. Okay. Reason why I know that my stepfather is from Jersey and uh-huh. his favorite band is Bruce Springsteen. Like his favorite. He loves, he's obsessed yeah. with Bruce Springsteen. So, yeah. Well, Born in the USA is by mm-hmm. Bruce Springsteen. And really, who else would be number one? I mean, it's the boss himself. He is the boss. He is the boss. Um, Born in the USA is the 17th studio album by American recording artist Bruce Springsteen. It was released in June on June 4th, 1984 mm-hmm. by Columbia Records. It has been certified 17-time platinum, mm-hmm. selling over 17 million units in the United States and then 30 million copies worldwide. 
Born in the USA, topped the charts in nine countries, including the United States and the United Kingdom, becoming the most recognizable and successful albums and being the top best-selling album of all time. So Amazing. Yes. Thank you, Bruce. Yes. All right. You ready for the next one? I guess. Yeah. I, give it to me. I think, I think you're going to get all of these. Whoa, 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 whoa. Um, well, Bon Jovi. Bon Jovi. What's the name of the song? Ugh. Come on, girl. I know. I'm having a brain fart. <laughs> <laughs> name just his songs. Like, I'm sure it's going to be. I mean, and it's not Living on a Prayer. It is. Is it? Yeah. That's in Living living on a Prayer. It is by Living bon on a Prayer. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, Living on a Prayer by Bon Jovi. Yeah. This song, obviously, we could not not list it on this list. Uh, This is Living on a Prayer is from his 1986 Slippery When Wet best album fucking ever. Yeah. This, you know, basically encapsulates the hardworking blue collar lifestyle and that, you know, you're always fighting and like Mm -hmm. when you're in a couple, you fight the world together type of mentality. Yeah. Living on the Prayer is a song by Bon Jovi, the band, and mm-hmm. it it topped the charts, and it was their third hit from that record, Slippery When Wet. Slippery mm-hmm. When Wet was really, 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 really good. Yes, yes. Um, however, in 2013, the song was certified triple platinum for over 3 mi- million digital downloads. Mm. The official music video reached 1 billion views mm-hmm. on YouTube in January 2023. 1 b- 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 billion? Wow. Still, it's still like a good song today. All the children, they like it. Yes. All the kids (laughs) these days. All the the children. You ready? Ready. This one is from a movie, Kat. But I'm funny how? I mean, funny like I'm a clown. I amuse you. I make you laugh. I'm here to fucking amuse you. What do you mean funny? Funny how? How am I funny? Is it The Godfather? No. Come it on, sounds like it sounds like Joe Pesci. Mm-hmm. My cousin Vinny. No. One more try. Uh, was it Home Alone? No, no. it wasn't Home Alone. <laughs> no, I, I know what you're talking about though. With, with the yeah, filthy bastards or whatever yeah. he plays. No, this is from Goodfellas. Oh, Goodfellas, Jesus yeah. crackers. <laughs> the, the, the movie is about the mob. Yes. And there are four key characters. One of them, Paulie, is the leader of the organization. The three other, Tommy, Henry, and Jimmy, are various, you know, various levels of henchmen for mm-hmm. him. But early in the movie, Tommy, a hyper-aggressive psycho, is at dinner with his friends at a restaurant uh, with, you know, and a couple of his associates, including Henry, who's the lead. Mm-hmm. And... He basically, Henry just said, oh, he was telling a story. And Henry's like, oh, you're so funny. And he goes into that rant, ah. which was totally improv Joe Pesci improv that entire scene. You know, like I've, met, sh- I've met Joe Pesci. You have? Yeah. How short is he? He's very I short. I want to know. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, so I'll try to keep this short. Okay. You've heard of Frankie Valli in the Four Seasons. Yes. Okay. One of the seasons is Tommy DeVito. Mm-hmm. I was an extra in the movie Gone Fishing with Joe Pesci and Danny Glover. Right. On the set, like, my mom got called back. We went to the casting call. My mom ca- got called back. She went – it was filmed in South Florida. So, like, over Alligator Alley was part of it and in the Everglades. And this was late 90s. And you 
Did you live in Florida then? No. Okay. So you may not remember this actually. So my mom went to a couple of different scenes and then she's like, hey, can I bring my daughter? And they're like, yeah, sure, bring her. We need, you know, as many people as possible. So the scene that I'm in is, if you haven't seen the movie, it's like basically Joe Pesci, Danny Glover win this trip down to Florida and they are start test driving like a bunch of different boats. And so this one really fancy boat, they test drive, all these, all these things kind of go wrong with it. The throttle breaks and then it hits land and interrupts the middle of this boat show. Right. So I'm like one of the extras at this boat show. So on the set, like in between takes and that kind of stuff. And while my mom had been there, she got to know Tommy DeVito really well. Mm-hmm. Got introduced to Joe Pesci. So when she brings me, like I meet all of these people and my mom kept in contact with Tommy DeVito up until his passing a few years ago. But in the key thing for that movie, it's like one of those goofy, silly you know, just typical movies, like Lethal Weapon kind of-ish, like that right, right. genre, I mm-hmm. guess. When they were shooting that scene that my mom and I were in at the boat show, all the other extras had to be kind of back behind the scene, but we actually got to sit behind the director when they did the stunts for it. Mm-hmm. So the first day of the stunt, Danny Glover's stunt double... He went, didn't do as much effect that they wanted to, didn't, didn't really knock over any other boats or anything like that. So we talked to him at the end of the day and he's like, oh, he's like, tomorrow I'm just going to kick the shit out of it. I'm just, I'm going to go faster. Right. Well, the next day he, he kicked the shit out of it, but he hit the little ramp that was in the water by, by the mangroves. He hit it wrong and it flipped the boat over. Oh my God. So the stunt, both the Joe Pesci and Data Glover stunt doubles kind of like flip over. And what happens is one of the boats that gets knocked over, it decapitates a stunt woman. Oh my God. Her name is Janet Fisher. And you'll see, like if you watch it to the end of the movie, it says this movie's dedicated to Janet Fisher. We met her. Like we talked to her, her husband, her father, and her two twin girls were on the set. Oh my God. What, what, I, was anybody held accountable? No, it was just an accident. I mean, and the guy, he really wasn't like, he didn't do it intentionally. It was, it, nothing really happened. But I will say this though, the casting um, company provided for people who were there, like psychological uh-huh. therapy if you wanted to go. And then we got all got this like grand opening of the movie that was in Naples and yeah. we got to go to it and none of the stars. I mean, they wouldn't go to Naples, Florida to go to a, a movie premiere, but, <laughs> but I will say that, you know, they did a really good job as far as like taking care. And that was, they were at the end of filming the movie anyways, and they literally stopped everything. And it took about a year. I think it, it came out in 97 or 98. Mm-hmm. So wow. anyway. Oh my God. That's so you just triggered me. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> but Joe Pesci. <laughs> well, I'm you just... know what? The next one may trigger you too. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Well, that was just my story about how like I had met, you know, Joe Pesci. Like my mom would call Tommy. Joe answered the phone one day and he's like, oh, Michelle, my love from Florida. <laughs> yeah, here you go. <laughs> I love it. I love it. <laughs> Are you ready for your next question? Well, not question. I think I, I'm doing well. So I think the last one counts because I knew it was Joe Pesci. It's a half a point. It's a half a point. I when, should have known that was Goodfellas. It's though. a half a point. That. It's okay. It's a half a point. <laughs> that story. You know what? I'm gonna give you the whole point because nah. yeah, that that was a good story. Okay. <laughs> All right. You're ready for the next uh, sound clip? Yes. <laughs> sounds familiar but i can't that is opus 17 don't you worry about me from the four seasons do you remember that song 
Oh, you no. know the song. Oh, my I probably song. do. It's my favorite, favorite song. So Opus 17 was their first hit with the new vocalist, John Long. The mm-hmm. title means that this was the 17th single released by the Four, Se- Four Seasons at the time. So you would think, you know, I would know. <laughs> it's all right. It's okay. So I the, didn't get it. Uh, the, sorry, Tommy. It's okay. The Four Seasons is, is an American rock pop band, and it was formed in 1960 in Newark, New mm-hmm. Jersey. Yes, it was. Uh, have you ever seen that play? The Jersey Boys? Yeah. No, but Tommy flew my mom up there when it came out, mm-hmm. and they got to go watch it on Broadway. Oh, you know what? You have to go see it. I don't even I think know. it's playing anymore. Well, the last I heard, it was actually traveling. Okay. Like, it was going to different places, but I don't know if it's, like, the same actors that were in, like, the original Broadway Yeah, it was play. good. I saw it in New York mm-hmm. twice, and then I saw it in Florida twice. Oh, um, and my mom and did see it in Florida as well. Yes. It's yeah. good. It doesn't matter who. It's just a good, it has all the songs. It's it like Mamma Mia. Yeah. It has all the music. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> they were also known as Frankie Valley in the Four Seasons yes. before uh, 1970, but yes. nearly all of their hits were created after as the Four Seasons. Sherry. Yes. Sherry, baby. (laughs) So you're doing good. You're doing good. Okay. (laughs) Are you ready? You're going to get this next one. Okay. We're going to get that because... I will. You will. I don't know that. So that is Woke Up This Morning mm-hmm. by, it was the theme song for The Sopranos. Oh, I never really watched The Sopranos. <laughs> I've never watched The Sopranos. I've watched it, but I've never like. Uh, Wait a minute. I've never I... like watched it from like start to finish. I would I would watch episodes, but yeah. I, I I wasn't as intimately familiar. Oh, you got to check that out. Like I could recite the Big Bang Theory I... <laughs> theme but song. But you're the mob girl <laughs> here in Crime Chat. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you would have gotten that to that. That is actually the lead song to um, The Sopranos, and everybody remembers mm-hmm. it. And it was written by... Except for me. <laughs> and it was written by a British <laughs> band called Alabama 3. Mm-hmm. And it's... I, I, I don't think I've ever heard the song in its entirety. It's always like that short little version from The Sopranos. That's their claim to fame. Mm-hmm. All right, Kat. And are you... It's like the it's like the Friends. I'll be there for right. you. Like you never... You don't hear the whole song. I, no one's ever but... heard that song. Is, there, is, that, is that actually a song? Or is that... Yeah. Okay. The Rembrandts oh, or something right. like that. That's right. The Rembrandts, yeah. All right. Are you ready for the last the last clip it? You know, I'm fifty fifty. Like that's that's where my that's my baseline. I'm pretty fifty. You're gonna 50. get this one. You're gonna get this one. All <laughs> okay. right, girl. Hit play. Leave the gun. Take the cannoli. The godfather. <laughs> Leave the gun. Take the cannoli. Yes. yes. The Godfather. It was first released in 1972, yet one of the most memorable lines in that movie. Mm-hmm. Leave the gun, take the cannoli. Yep. Yep. It was entirely improved. Entirely. Oh. Yeah. That was not a line in the movie. He just improved it. And because the scene, if you remember the scene, is when they shoot the guy in the car, mm-hmm. in the field, like, you know, off to the side. Right. And they were going to leave the, all the evidence there. Yep. Back in the day when you can leave evidence, don't have to worry about fingerprints. Mm. Um, but, yeah, the scene basically, 
became such a triumph for the godfather to be it's so recognizable mm-hmm. and it's has like this legendary impact mm-hmm. on just moviegoers whether you see the movie or not you know yeah leave the gun take the cannolis yeah never leave the cannolis never yeah. the other way around no 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 take take the cannolis so cat you got three and a <laughs> out of six you got five and a half <laughs> i don't know what math you have <laughs> It's the it's the math where you're winning. It's crime chat math. <laughs> it's crime chat math. <laughs> oh wow! Well, okay. So yeah, I did okay. I did better than I did in the spy quiz. <laughs> but our case today actually is a chatter request. Oh, okay. Shout out to Chatter Sherry for requesting the story of John List. Wow. Okay. This is gonna. Yeah. This is a dark story. Thank you, Sherry. Yes. Thank and, you, Sherry. And thank you for for asking Cat to do it. <laughs> <laughs> well, today's story. So we're gonna talk about John List, but it's the whole thing is technically under the category of parasite and you may be saying cat what the hell is parasite cat what the hell is parasite (laughs) well according to merriam webster it is one that murders his or her father mother or close relative so both matricide killing of one's mother and uh, patricide killing of one's father are subcategories of parasite oh okay. okay yeah So in this case, we're going to talk about a father who killed his wife, his three children, and his mother. He evaded capture for about 18 years. In November 1971, after murdering his family in the name of the Lord and to save their souls, John List fled the area and started a new life under a new name. It took almost a month for authorities to be alerted by neighbors that something just wasn't right with the List home. When they went to check on the family, they discovered the execution of his wife, Helen, 47, shot in the back of the head. His mother, Alma, 84, shot above her left eye. Daughter, Patricia, 16, and younger son, Frederick, 13, both shot in the back of the head. And then the older son, John Frederick, 15, was shot at least 10 times. Oh, my God. Authorities began to search for List after they realized his face was ripped out of every picture in the family photos inside the home likely this was so police wouldn't have nothing to go off of like the most recent picture that didn't help but we're going to get into that Uh they did find his chevrolet impala at the kennedy airport although there was no record of him taking any flights over the past month now remember that was in november the police are now starting to look for him in december okay however it wasn't that difficult to disappear in 1971 as it would be today for instance remember the case db cooper yes Okay, the elusive businessman who told a flight attendant he had a bomb on the plane that was headed for Seattle. And as the plane landed, his demands and ransom of $200,000 and four parachutes was met. The plane took back off. D.B. Cooper lowered the stairs at the rear of the plane and jumped out mid-flight, never to be seen again, disappearing into the night, just as John listed in the same month and the same year some actually say that john list fit the description of db cooper really how crazy would that be that not only to successfully disappear once but twice however it is not likely these two men are the same (laughs) it's a great conspiracy theory though yeah so let's start with john emile list the man the mystery (laughs) the less than legendary mass murderer Born September 17, 1925 in Bay City, Michigan, List was the only child of German-American parents, John Frederick List and Alma Barbara Florence List. Like his father, List was a devout Lutheran and a Sunday school teacher. In 1943, List graduated high school and then enlisted 
dead in the army. Get it? (laughs) Liz's father died in 1944 while he was serving as a laboratory technician during World War II. After his discharge in 1946, Liz went to the University of Michigan, earned a bachelor's degree in business administration, and then a master's degree in accounting. He was then commissioned as a second lieutenant through the ROTC program into the Army Reserves. As the Korean War escalated, List was recalled to active service in November of 1950. He was stationed at Fort Eustis, Virginia. I've been there. I don't know if you know where that is. Mm-mm, I don't. It's in Virginia. <laughs> where he met his first wife, Helen Taylor. Helen was a widow after her husband was killed in action in Korea, and she had one daughter named Brenda with her late husband. Helen and John List married December 1st, 1951 in Baltimore, Maryland, and then shortly after that they moved to California where he was, he got reassigned, so he was still in the army, but once the army realized, once he got to California, he had like mad accounting skills, Uh he was reclassed into the finance corps, so he's no longer a lab tech. List finished his active tour in 1952, and the family moved back to Michigan, where his three children, Patricia, John Frederick, and Frederick, were born in Kalamazoo. Sound familiar? Yeah, and I love that word, Kalamazoo. I know. It's so fun to say. Kalamazoo! (laughs) Patricia went by Patty. John Frederick went by John Jr., but he really wasn't a junior, because it was John Emil List and then John Frederick List. Mm -hmm. John Frederick List was his father's name. So I'm just going to call him John Frederick. And then Frederick was Freddie. Okay. So by 1959, List had rose to supervisor position with his accounting firm. However, Helen had become an alcoholic and was increasingly unstable. Brenda married and left the home in 1960. So she was no longer there. And then after she married, List and the rest of his family moved to Rochester, New York, where he took a job with Xerox and became the director of accounting services. So I'd say that's a pretty, Uh you know, solid job, right? In 1965, List accepted a promotion as the vice president and comptroller at a bank in Jersey City, New Jersey. Uh The the family moved into this picture behind me, a 19-room Victorian mansion. That's huge. Called... Breeze Knoll, oh located at 431 Hillside Avenue in Westfield, New Jersey. So if you're listening, I do have a picture of the home behind me in my background. It's enormous. Yes, it's absolutely huge. Westfield, New Jersey is a lucrative town. It's kind of an uppity-uppity town. Affluent people live there. Mm-hmm. It is in Union County, located about 16 miles southwest of Manhattan or Staten Island. <laughs> 55 miles north of where I used to live in New Jersey. So I could drive there in an hour and I would have, had I thought about it, I might have gone by and be like, ooh. Yeah. But the house isn't there anymore and I'll get to that. Okay. While things seem to be normal, List had actually lost his job as an accountant and he kept his financial problems from his wife. Now, instead of going to work as his wife thought every day or his family assumed that he was going to work, he hid his unemployment and he would sit at a local bus station every single day. Yeah. Okay. Bye, honey. I'm going to work. Yeah. See you at five. Like she's not going to eventually notice that there's no money coming in? Well, uh, Liz did owe $11,000 on his mortgage, and he was actually skimming money off of his elderly mother from her bank accounts. Oh, okay. When they moved to New Jersey, Alma, the mother, did move with them. 
Helen also began to show signs of dementia brought on by syphilis that she contracted from her first husband, which she kept hidden from List for almost 18 years. Oh, well, you know what? <laughs> yeah, well, she, obviously this family knows how to keep secrets from each other. Right? Oh, my God. Well, List was not immune to mental disorders himself. He was diagnosed later by a psychiatrist as having obsessive compulsive personality disorder. But seeing his only option at this crucial point of either going on welfare or murdering his entire family to save their souls, List opted for the latter. Choices. <laughs> Choices. <laughs> Choices. By killing his entire family, List hoped to spare the shame of being a failure and guarantee wow. that they would spend the afterlife together. So on November 9th, 1971, List shot members of his entire family one by one using a 9mm Steyr automatic pistol and his father's 22 caliber revolver. While the children were at school, List first shot Helen in the back of the head, his mother then, Alma, in her left eye. Alma actually lived on the third floor there. Oh, wow. She, there's like an apartment, like its own little efficiency up there. So she lived up there. That's where you put grandma in the attic. <laughs> you put grandma in the attic. It's funny you say that. Wait, there's more. Oh, no. oh, God. <laughs> so Mother Alma lived in the apartment upstairs. When Patricia and Frederick came home after school, they came home together after school. He shot them both in the back of the head. Son John, John Frederick, had a soccer game after school, which is why he didn't come home with his brother and sister. But when he did come home, he was also shot. Later, it was determined that the gun actually might have misfired. There was a struggle. Uh John Frederick did fight back, but List shot him a few times and then... He laid on the floor and apparently his body twitched and then he basically shot him several more times to make sure that he was dead. Ten times in total. Oh my god, that is... This is your entire family. Yeah. Neighbors grew suspicious after seeing lights on like in the home, but then there was no activity. So the lights were on, but there's like they don't see anybody, nothing's around. And it took the actual light bulbs burning out before they contacted police. When police arrived, they entered the house through an unlocked window. The house was cold and there was no signs of activity, but they heard music. It was funeral type music and that was described by one of the officers on the scene as being very disturbing. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Then officers noticed a faint smell of decomposing flesh. They found the source of the smell in the ballroom of the mansion and discovered four bodies inside, each lying on a blood-soaked sleeping bag lined up side by side. Police noticed a blood trail on the floor leading from the kitchen which is likely where they were shot and then drug like drag marks into the ballroom. Police also noticed that evidence of an attempted cleanup is they found bags full of like blood soaked paper towels. And then there was a bloody mop that was left in the kitchen, even though there were still trails like he didn't completely clean it up. Right. Now, as police searched the rest of the house, they found the body of Liz's mother on the third floor. In the den, police found two guns and a letter to the pastor of the local church where the Liz family attended. The letter was not only a confession, but an explanation. And I'm going to read it. Are you ready? Uh Uh Uh-huh. Okay. And this is going to be the whole letter as well as going to be on the Patreon, as well as crime scene pictures, pictures like family pictures, that kind of thing. Okay. All right. Here's a letter. Quote, Dear Pastor Rankwell. Rewinkle. Here we go. Dear Pastor Rewinkle. I am sorry to add this additional burden to your work. I know that what has been done was wrong from all that I have been taught and that any reasons that I might give will not make it right. But you are the one person that I know that while not condoning this will at least possibly understand why I felt I had to do this. One, I wasn't earning anywhere near enough to support us. Everything I tried seemed to fall to pieces. True, we could have gone bankrupt and maybe on welfare. 
too. But that brings me to my next point. Knowing the type of location that one would have to live in, plus the environment for the children, plus the effect on them knowing they were on welfare, was just more than I thought I could do and should endure. I know they were willing to cut back, but this involved a lot more than that. Three, with Pat being so determined to get into acting, I was also fearful that, that what that might do to her to continue being a Christian. I'm sure it would not have helped. Four, with Helen not going to church, I knew that this would harm the children eventually in their attendance. I had continued to hope that she would begin to come to church soon, but when I mentioned that to her, Mr. Jitz wanted to pay her an elder's call. She just blew up and she wanted her name taken off the church rolls. Again, this could only have an adverse result on the children's continued attendance. So that is the sum of it. If any of these had been the condition we might have pulled through, but this was just too much. At least I'm certain that all have gone to heaven now. If things had gone on, who knows if this would be the case. Of course, mother got involved because doing what I did to my family would have been a tremendous shock to her at this age. Therefore, knowing that she is also a Christian, I felt it best that she be relieved of the troubles of this world that would have hit her. So he saved mama from the heartache by killing her. After it was all over, I said some prayers for them all from a hymn book. That was the least I could do. Now for the final arrangements. Helen and the children have all agreed they would prefer to be cremated. Please see to it that the costs are kept low. For mother, she has a plot at the Frankenmuth Church Cemetery. Please contact Mr. Hearman. Contact information. He's married to a niece of mother's and knows what the arrangements are to be made. She always wanted Reverend Herman Zander of Bay City to preach the sermon, but he is not well. I am also leaving some letters in your care. Please send them on and add whatever comments you think appropriate. The relationships are as follows. Miss Lydia Meyer, mother's sister. Miss Eva Meyer, Helen's mother. Jean Seifert, Helen's sister. Also, I don't know what will happen to the books and personal things, but to extent possible, I'd like for them to be distributed as you see fit. Some books might go to the school or church library. Originally, I had planned this for November 1st, All Saints Day. But travel arrangements were delayed. I thought it would be an appropriate day for them to get to heaven. As for me, please let me be dropped off from the congregation rolls. Like, I'm not attending church anymore, so don't worry. (laughs) I leave myself in the hand of God's justice and mercy. I don't doubt that he is able to help us, but apparently he saw fit not to answer my prayers the way that I had hoped would be answered. This makes me think that perhaps it was the best as far as the children's souls were concerned. I know that many will only look at the additional years that they could have lived, but if finally they were no longer Christians, what would be gained? Also, I'm sure many will say, quote, how could anyone do such a horrible thing? End quote. My only answer is, it isn't easy and only done after much thought. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of thought that went into this, especially this letter. My gosh. What okay. the Almost over. Oh my! Almost over. Just a couple more, a couple more paragraphs. Okay. Pastor Miss Morris may possibly be reached at 802 Pleasant Hill Drive, Elkin, home of her sister. One other thing, it may seem cowardly to have always shot from behind, but I didn't want any of them to know, even at the last second, that I had to do this to them. John got hurt more because he seemed to struggle longer. The rest were immediately out of pain. John didn't consciously feel anything either. Please remember me in your prayers. I will need them whether or not the government does its duty as it sees it. I'm only concerned with making peace with God, and of this I am assured because of Christ dying even for me. P.S. Mother's in the hallway in the attic, third floor. She was too heavy to move. John. Oh my God. <laughs> End quote. Oh, no. End letter. P.S. 
Mom's in the attic. That's why I said, oh, she put mom in the attic. Yeah, mom's in the attic. She was too heavy to move. Oh my God. So that's his confession and explanation essentially of why he did what he did, which the police found the day that they went into the home, which was about a month later. Oh my God. The arrogance mm. in that letter is shocking. And then also, I really think that somebody who calls their uh, parent mother mm-hmm. is creepy. <laughs> mother. To the get go. 19 rooms in that freaking house and you put her in the attic, really? (laughs) It was like an efficiency apartment. (laughs) I know. Oh, my God. Okay, but so we're kind of actually going to get into his, the psychology and a little bit. Okay. We'll get, we'll get to that. Okay. Okay. So List had also sent notes stating that the family would be in North Carolina for several weeks to the children's schools, part-time jobs. He stopped the family's milk from being delivered, the mail, the newspapers. He also took money from his bank account, his mother's bank account, and her savings bonds when he fled. Police discovered that List recently lost his banking job, was having money problems, and feared that his family would have to go on welfare. He also feared his family was drifting away from the Christian life and would eventually stop going to church. He disapproved of Patricia's interest in acting and thought it was immoral. And now in John List's mind, there was only the one thing that he could do to save his souls, which is basically what that letter was explaining. It provides details about the murders to include that it took longer for John Frederick to die. He was described as being riveted with bullets until List was confident that he was dead. So one of the other things that I found was they all died and he said a prayer for them. He then made a sandwich while his dead family bled out on the floor and like sat there and ate a sandwich. What? Yeah. A cold-blooded killer. Yeah. Now, when news broke of the family murders, witnesses would claim that this mild-mannered accountant was oddly reclusive and had only a few friends. Two days after the discovery of the bodies, List car was found at JFK Airport in New York City with a parking voucher that was dated November 10th, and the letter was actually dated November 9th. While there was no evidence that List took a flight, police knew that they had an uphill battle that List basically had a one-month head start in front of them. Wow. So that's kind of everything that happened. Now I'm going to talk about the, the police work yeah. and the amazing kind of behind the scenes stuff that happened to be able to capture this guy. Okay. Now the case quickly became the second most infamous crime in New Jersey, surpassed only by the kidnapping and murder of the Lindbergh baby. Police issued a nationwide arrest warrant as the manhunt focused on tracking down this mass murderer. It was a high priority case. The FBI was involved. Other, you know, law enforcement was involved because they really had no idea where he was. Uh-huh. Autopsies did confirm that the victims were dead about a month as well. So with all of this information and the ticket for the voucher for the car, like, we got to do something. (laughs) The bodies after the autopsies, uh, Mother Alma, her body was flown to Frankenmuth, Michigan as her wishes, and she was interred in the St. Lorenz Lutheran Cemetery. Helen and the three children were buried at Fairview Cemetery in Westfield, New Jersey. But where was he? Where was John List? He was unlisted. I'm here all day, folks. Police initially had two assumptions. First, he committed suicide. And second, that he flew somewhere maybe to the Midwest. List later said that he did not commit suicide because it was a sin. And he wanted to see his family Uh in the afterlife. He he just didn't want to go broke. That's it. Now, every now and then, police would get what they called list sightings from the tip lines, saying they saw somebody who resembled him, you know, just in various different locations from around the nation. However, List did elude police for almost 18 years. 
the police did not give up. They fought to keep the story alive, like on the anniversaries of the deaths. They would call the newspapers. They would send out press releases and did the best that they could. But then they hadn't. They had an idea. Bing. Insert light bulb here. Bing. John Walsh in America's Most Wanted. Through the viewership of this show, some of the most highly sought out fugitives were captured. Detectives were confident if they aired the list murders, someone would recognize him and it would lead to his capture. Yeah. Now, when America's Most Wanted was proposed with this idea, John Walsh himself said, quote, this is a guy I'd like to see get caught, end quote. <laughs> and he even said on there, too, like, we do usually do normal cases. This is a cold case. Uh-huh. Right, so I'm going to kind of get into the details here, too. Usually at the end of each episode, America's Most Wanted, they would show the most recent photo of the wanted person, do some, like, computer animated, potentially, like, aging of the person. But 18 years had passed, and John List likely would not look the same. Uh And the most recent photograph they had was about 20 years old. Oh, wow. So that's all they had to go off of. Yeah. Now, enter in the highly specialized world of forensic sculpting. I'm so excited. (laughs) John Walsh had come familiar over the years with this technique since his son was murdered in 1981, and he had a passion for capturing murderers. Uh He knew of this renowned forensic reconstruction artist named Frank Bender, who reconstructs faces to help police track down aging fugitives or identify decomposing bodies. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about what forensic sculpting is. Okay. Forensic sculptors, like Bender, often work with pathologists, forensic odontologists, so dentists, Mm. anthropologists, as well as police detectives. And when forensic sculptors only have, like, a skull to work with, let's say they, they find a skeleton, they only have a skull to work with. And especially at this time, they don't have the DNA capabilities that we do today. But even with that, sometimes you don't always get a good amount of DNA to test it. So when they only have a skull to work with, they use special charts to measure facial tissue, the thickness based on age, based on race, based on gender. And then using these measurements kind of as a guideline, they also calculate the proper thickness. So like your, your skin is a lot thinner underneath your eyes and it would be like your cheeks, you know, that kind of thing. Right. So they have to take all of this into account and then mold the shape of the face with clay. But even more so, forensic sculpting also includes paying attention to specific forms in the skull such as the nuances the symmetry of the skull right to make it an individual skull and make it different from like my skull to your skull kind of thing right they would know if they had like a a large forehead right like the jawline was more yeah 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 then from this the mold would be made into what they call a fiberglass bust i need a bust i need a fiberglass (laughs) bust (laughs) but this bust is created it's colored, and it details the likeliness of its subject. So part art, part uh-huh. science, part intuition, 100% fascinating. I uh-huh. It was like, as I researched this part, I was like, wow, mind blown. This is so cool. Now, while Bender specialized in putting faces on the dead, he would now have to put a face on a living but aging mass murderer John wow. List. Going only off of the picture, Bender had to add 18 years to list and helped put a life back into this dying case, essentially. While computers artificially are able to put an age on a fugitive, Bender's forensic bust of list added a personal touch. 
Bender said he would get into the head of the person and in a sense kind of like become that person while he's working on his art. He wants to know everything about the subject and for John List, know who the man is behind the person. So to imagine what an older John List would look like, he consulted forensic psychologist Richard Walter, who created a psychological profile. Now, I did actually see one reference that said that they also consulted John Douglas, uh-huh. <laughs> but I, I wasn't able to like cooperate that with any anything okay. else. It only mentioned Richard Walter, okay. but we'll, we'll say he did because John Douglas did everything. To analyze the man behind the murders, both Richard Walter and Frank Bender researched newspapers, old photographs. They looked into this upbringing by his strict German parents. He was an only child of an overly protective and domineering mother. Uh. The Lutheran church was also a huge focus in his upbringing. Uh-huh. The psychological profile revealed a man who killed out of anger and retaliation because of his own personal failures of losing employment and being considered an outcast for most of his life. Walter would say that this profile revealed the perpetrator would have a history of frustration and have a feeling of being entrapped by women, typically by women in authority or women of his age or older. Wow. So mother. Mother. <laughs> Walter's psychological profile helped Bender's vision bring life to this aging fugitive. He looked at photographs of List's parents and predicted the appearance, giving List a receding hairline and sagging jowls. Uh-huh. The sagging mouth was added, Bender said, because of the anxiety that List carried with him. Wow, okay. Uh, Richard Walter added that this sagging, like the anxiety wasn't necessarily from guilt from killing his family, but the anxiety of the fear of getting caught. Yeah. So this ages you. Mm-hmm. List also had a surgical scar behind his right ear that was added and aged as well. And with the forensic fiberglass bust complete, Bender painted the skin and hair and then put like a suit on him in a tie, which is what Richard Walter in his psychological profile felt mm-hmm. would he would be wearing most of the time as you know part of his profile. Yeah. But they were missing one thing. Mm. Walter was certain List would not be vain enough to wear contacts. So they would be wearing glasses and maybe a different style of glasses than what was portrayed in the 20-year-old picture, the last picture that they had. So Frank Bender thought List would be wearing glasses that were dark with thick frames in order to hide the fact that he was a failure. Walter said this would predict that List would look smarter and more important than he actually was. Yeah, those those serial killer uh the glasses, glasses. Yeah, right? Serial killer specials. <laughs> serial killer specials. So looking through like dozens and dozens of glasses, Frank Bender found the perfect pair and he put it on the mold. He put it on the bust and it was complete. Wow. On Sunday, May 21st, 1989, America's Most Wanted aired the episode on John List, premiering the artwork and the forensic bust that Frank Bender created, showing that on the show. And they also had that psychological profile of that Richard Walter did. So they premiered all of this on America's Most Wanted. Now, a family in Denver, Colorado, recognized this face, this bust of John List. Wanda Flannery and her daughter, Eva Mitchell, noticed the resemblance of John List with a former neighbor of theirs. Eva Mitchell said it all started to add up. He was a classy dresser, well put together. He was an accountant, a Lutheran. He had a scar behind his ear. She also said that the glasses were the clincher for her, and she was positive she knew who the forensic bus was that was portraying as John List. Wow. Now, John Walsh actually called Frank Bender's work the most brilliant example of detective work he had ever seen. 
Walsh kept Bender's forensic bust of List in place, like in honor, like in his office for many, many years. But it's actually in 2008, John Walsh donated it to the forensic science exhibit at the privately owned National National Museum of Crime and Punishment in D.C. Oh, nice. Okay. So you can actually go and see it now. We should go there. We should do a crime chat on location and go there. Okay, now Wanda Flannery, the mom, she was the one that actually called America's Most Wanted. She called the hotline and later then told the FBI that this resembled her former neighbor, Bob Clark, who recently moved to Richmond, Virginia. The FBI closed in, found him, arrested Robert Peter Clark at the accounting office where he worked in Richmond. The arresting agent asked him if he was Mr. Clark and he said yes. And then he was asked if he was John List and he said no. I'm Robert P. Clark. However, they knew they had their man. Yeah. Fingerprints from the gun permit application that he that John List filled out about a month before the murders were matched to his like booking fingerprints. Bob Clark was John List, and he would eventually admit to being John List, not Robert Peter Clark, and not DB Cooper. (laughs) (laughs) Amazingly, John List wore the same style glasses that Frank Bender used on his forensic bust, like the just almost exact same. But the the model, like it looked exactly the same. Really? Oh wow! The front page of the New York Times actually depicted this, like side by side by side Mm -hmm. picture. Of John List, first 20 years ago, that 20-year-old picture that they had, the forensic bust that Frank Bender did of John List, and then his, like, arresting photos, and they were all identical. Like, really? It was, it was the same person. That's crazy. Uh, we need to dig a little bit more on Frank Bender. Yeah. I'm digging yeah. him. <laughs> Now, at trial, the story was told of how this mild-mannered accountant meticulously planned a brutal execution of his entire family. Mm. List lost his job, buckled underneath the pressure, and this was his only way out for him to get to start with a clean slate. With the executions over, List said a prayer, wrote his confession letter. He lowered the thermostat to slow the body's decomposition and then turned on the radio to a classical music station and then began his life as a fugitive. Wow. And this is, and they were in that house for a month before someone found the bodies. Mm -hmm. Yes. Wow. And some of the pictures, obviously, with like the crime scene pictures and stuff, they they really don't look that decomposed. Because the temperature was Uh where it should be. Yeah. List made his way to Denver, applied for a new social security number as Robert Peter Clark. <laughs> In time, he made friends with Wanda Flannery, the neighbor. Uh-huh. He joined the local Lutheran church and then married Wanda's friend, Dolores Miller. Are you kidding me? Oh my God, poor Dolores. <laughs> well, Do- Dolores never suspected a thing and she stood by her man. Oh God, Dolores. I, yeah, not Dolores, Dolores. <laughs> she made a statement on the news saying, quote, I do not believe it. I love my husband deeply. I do not believe this is the same man. End quote. You can't argue with stupidity. (laughs) (laughs) It is what it is. But it was the same man. It was the same man. Yeah. (laughs) On April 12th, 1990, the jury found John List guilty on five counts of first-degree murder and was sentenced to five terms of life in prison to be served consecutively. At sentencing, the judge said, quote, John Emil List will be eternally synonymous with concepts of selfishness, horror, and evil. Mm-hmm. He is a man who could coldly 
calculatingly and cunningly conceive and carry out a cowardly plan to assassinate each of his three children, end quote. Now, when John was asked if he had anything to say during court, he denied direct responsibility for his actions. And he said, quote, I feel that because of my mental state at the time, I was unaccountable for what happened. I ask all affected by this for their forgiveness, understanding, and prayer, end quote. So he didn't deny it. He didn't deny it, but he he denied direct responsibility because he filed an appeal saying the convictions on the grounds that his judgment had been impaired were from post-traumatic stress disorder due to his military service he also and i'm i'm laughing because and because ptsd is a thing hi it's me i'm the problem it's me yeah (laughs) it's a thing but when you use it as a crutch no i'm sorry no to kill your whole family yes He also argued with the PTSD, his second argument was that the letter left behind at the crime scene was a confession that was a confidential communication with his pastor. Both of those arguments were rejected and the federal appeals like upheld the sentencing. Okay. List eventually expressed a degree of remorse for his crimes. He said, quote, I wish I had never done what I did, end quote, to Connie Chung in 2002. And then he said, I've regretted my actions and prayed for forgiveness ever since. Now, List died of complications from pneumonia at age 82 on March 21st, 2008, while he was imprisoned at the St. Francis Medical Center in Trenton, New Jersey. Mm-hmm. In reporting his death, the New Jersey Star-Ledger referred to him as, quote, the boogeyman of Westfield, mm-hmm. end quote. We had a boogeyman a couple yeah. episodes ago. His body was not immediately claimed. <laughs> With Dolores, where is she? Oh, I don't know. I don't know what happened to Dolores. <laughs> she, once she probably realized that it was the same person, I would have been like, yeah, bye. Bye. But he was later claimed and buried next to his mother in Frankenmuth, Michigan. Mm. Now, my final note. Mm-hmm. Now, this invaluable tool of both art and psychology mixed with the predictions of how he looked and how he behaved was so accurate and was truly the beating heart of this cold case, heartbreaking case. Yeah. And, and scene that that case is crazy i didn't know all i honestly because they they have done like documentaries on him and stuff like Mm -hmm. that but Mm -hmm. i forgot that he got caught (laughs) and i didn't know all that about i mean the bust the bust i didn't know that and bender and stuff and i just Mm -hmm. realized something yeah this episode comes out on you said april 15th 15th. Mm -hmm. that's that's tax day and he's an accountant (laughs) (laughs) so i know like we usually talk about absolutely horrible stories and this is a freaking horrible story yeah but i wanted to get into a little bit more of that forensic background which i think is why we are so obsessed with true crime not the fact that somebody goes nuts and murders his entire family and Mm -hmm. thinks that's his only option to save their souls yeah but the amount of forethought and like just the forensics in this case is just amazing and it's not just like oh let me dust a fingerprint right you know there's so much more to it and i don't I just, that forensic sculpting is just like Yeah, well, we crazy. talk about a lot of bad people. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, a lot of these cases, sometimes we highlight mistakes that are made by 
uh, police. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's nice when we can kind of like <laughs> show exactly what they're capable of and mm -hmm. when everything. Yeah, it's it's good to kind of like not necessarily. Yeah, there's a bad guy in the story, but there's also a bunch of good guys in the story. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. thank you for doing that. And yeah, I, and it, and Sherry you, you brought this thank idea. Thank you, Sherry. So yes, yes, Chatter Sherry. This was awesome. Loved it. I got it now. I got. We gotta like show Bender just like we do, um, John. Yes, yeah, so we'll have pictures. So there's pictures of Frank Bender um, mm -hmm. with him and his bust. Okay. His forensic bust. Not is his he bust as bust. handsome as as our guy though? As your as you're picturing. <laughs> as as yeah, is he as handsome as John? Well, I'll let you. I'll I'll leave that opinion up to you. Okay. 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 <laughs> but there's pictures. Like I said, there's crime scene pictures. There's the pictures of the bus. There's pictures of news articles, mm. uh, and Frank Bender. And I don't remember if I put a picture of John, like the an image from the America's Most Wanted on there. Not if not, I'll find it or at least try and see if I can find a link for it. Yeah, and you said that house is no longer there, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I did meant to, mean to mention that. So about nine months after the, the murders, it, like, mm. it burnt down to the ground. Mm. And I don't know if they actually ever rebuilt over it. Like, it's weird when you have things that happen like that. A lot of times they turn it into a park or, you know, or something. Very rarely when a murder's happen. Yeah. And such a horrible thing happens. And, like, if the property is destroyed, like, Jeffrey Dahmer's apartment Right. The complex, right? They tore that down, but there's nothing there. Like, they didn't build over it. I wonder if that house went into, like, um, if somebody owned it when it burnt down, if it was sold or maybe was just condemned. It might or have something. just been condemned. I'm not I'm not sure. I just I remember reading that and all of my resources and everything is on there. There's there's so much. Wow. There's a lot. <laughs> That's crazy. But uh, but yeah, I do remember reading that it actually had burnt down to the ground. That is a shame. Oh my god. Well, that was good. Thank you for doing yeah. that. Yeah. Thank you, thank you, Sherry, for uh, for requesting it too. Yes, thank you. Because we don't want to leave you hanging, chatters. For more information on this case, please check out after yes. that crime chat only available on Patreon. All the goods are only available there. Yes. So don't forget to follow us also on all of our socials: Crime Chat with Nat Cat, YouTube, mm -hmm. Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, TikTok to see what we got coming up. Remember, Crime Chat with Nat and Cat. Subscribe to our Patreon. That Patreon, we have so many like bonus episodes. We do, basically we leave everything uncut mm -hmm. there. Mm -hmm. April, the end of April is another bonus episode. Oh, only available right. on Patreon. That's right. That's right. Our last bonus episode was New Year's Eve, right? Uh huh. That Our next bonus one. episode is. Do you remember Chris Crimes? Yes, Chris <laughs> Crimes. I already got mine. I, I already got like a couple lined up. I'm, I'm asking. We got so the, the next bonus episode are going to be Chris inspired crimes, and we'll explain that. Yes. in another episode. Yes. But you're going to have to check that out. Yes. And so be sure to check us out for the next episode. It's going to be Natalie's story before we get into the bonus episode, which is going to be in two weeks. Yes. You don't want to miss it. You may want to. We're going to be uh, neck deep in mud. Am I going to need a shower? I always need a shower after Definitely these. Definitely need a shower. Ugh. All right. We will see you on the next Crime Chat. Bye.